One of the things that tends to bother me a little bit about contemporary historical enterprise is how often it seems to deprive a nation or a culture of its heroes. I first encountered this in college uh, some 40 years ago when a couple of insecure professors that I had did everything that they could to point out every flaw that they could about every hero of history that they could. I wouldn't mind it so much because I'm all for objectivity and truth, but their rush to expose the faults of great men and women, at least their rush with regard to these particular profs, when they did that, they left out of their lectures most of the accomplishments about whom they lectured. They had plenty of time to tell you all their flaws, but they ran out of time to tell you actually what they did that makes us admire them. And what they lacked, in my view, was balance. Now, I am fully aware that everyone has flaws. No rational person would be likely to be naive enough to think that even our heroes are perfect, with one notable exception, of course. We just sang of him. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. But while everyone has flaws, not everyone accomplishes things so great at critical moments in history as to aspire and motivate those future generations to greatness themselves. Everyone has flaws, but not necessarily everyone has arisen to the position of a, of a hero in society. There's something very healthy about celebrating greatness, whether it's found in the arts, in a profession, in athletic, in parenting, or in any other worthwhile endeavor. One endeavor that the Bible celebrates with a perfect sense of balance is that of faith. We appreciate the faith of Esther and of Moses and of David and of Paul, just to name a few of many. All these people that I just mentioned had their flaws. And their flaws were exposed for generations to see. But it's their faith that the Bible stresses. Yes, it exposes their flaws. But it stresses their faith. And it stresses their spiritual successes. You know, there are really only two people in the Bible that are major characters. About whom really nothing negative is said. One's Daniel. And the other one's Joseph. And Joseph's debatable. Depending on how you handle that jail scene. But really, everybody else that's a major biblical character has flaws that are presented. But the Bible does it with balance. All people have flaws. And all people endure failures. But great people, especially great people of faith, don't allow those failures to become fatal. People known for their faith don't spend the bulk of their lives looking in the rearview mirror of their lives. You know, when you do that in a car... It's, it's somewhat healthy to look back every now and then to see what's behind you. I know some folks don't do that at all. They're dangerous drivers. But, but, but most of us, if we spend all of our time though looking in the rearview mirror, we're going to end up crashing because we'll have no vision for the future. We won't know where we're going. It's healthy to look in the rearview mirror of our lives, but healthy people spiritually, and those who, it's those who attain some form of spiritual greatness, and by the way, that's not just Moses, David, Paul, Esther, that could be you and that could be me, too. There's no reason why we can't obtain, attain spiritual greatness. 
We need to look in the rearview mirror of our lives occasionally, but we need to look forward to the future. Yes, we have failures, but if we do more than an occasional glance in the rearview mirror, the results could be devastating, spiritually devastating. Paul put it this way, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I introduce our topic today in this way because we're in the middle of a series of narratives about one of the greatest persons of faith in all the Bible, and that's Father Abraham, and that's without dispute. Abraham was one of the single greatest people of faith in the Bible. But if you're, if you're paying attention at all, if you've been around for the first several months of this study, you're aware that Moses, who's the human author of this letter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has been very careful not only to point out Abram's spiritual successes, but he also points out his spiritual failures. And as you might expect, when the Holy Spirit is involved, it's been done with a perfect balance. A perfect balance. In my view, we must be informed of Abram's failures so we can appreciate why he's in heaven today. Abram is a man, Abraham, as his name will soon be changed to in our narrative. Abraham is a man who is respected by a variety of people. The people of Islam respect Abram, Abraham. Our Jewish friends respect Abraham. Christians respect Abraham. We all recognize him to, have, to be a great man of faith. Now, there's a little difference with, between the respect of the Islamic faith and that of Judaism and Christianity. But still, the point being, all, all the major world faiths that are theistic respect Abraham. And we respect him in such a way that if we're not careful, we might begin to think that Abraham's in heaven today because he was this great man of faith. Well, yes and no. He's, he's a great man of faith, and he's in, Abra and he's in heaven today because of that faith, but it's a single act of faith that got him there. Not his lifetime of obedience, not his good works. I have actually spoken to people, not, 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 not people who were of the Christian faith. In this particular case, it was a Jewish friend of mine who thought, who believed with all of her heart that Abraham was in heaven today because he was a good person and that he never did anything wrong. And, oh, my friends, nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible points out what he did wrong. And I think the reason that, that the Holy Spirit did this through Moses was so that we would be sure that we understood that Abraham did not deserve to go to heaven on his own good. Yes, he was a great man of faith. And we haven't even gotten to Genesis chapter 22 yet. Well, you talk about faith. What he does with Isaac in Genesis chapter 22 is the greatest act of faith, perhaps, in all the Bible. Yes, he was a great man of faith, but no, he was not good enough to earn his way to heaven. Not even Abraham. And that's why Paul uses him in Romans chapter 4 as the example of someone who is justified or saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. There is no one who has ever lived outside of our Lord Jesus Christ himself who ever lived a perfect life. No one. Not even Father Abraham. So again, the reason I bring up, the reason I introduce this topic the way I have today is because I believe the Bible gives us a striking sense of balance with regard to this man Abraham. I hope you've seen him to be a man of faith so far, a man of faithful obedience. 
But not everything he did was the right thing to do. And we happen to be upon one of those chapters today where one of Abram's big flaws is going to be brought right out into the light. So we can appreciate Abraham, not because he was perfect, because he was forgiven. Because he's in heaven today because of God's grace, because of the work that Jesus Christ did, not because of Abram's own goodness. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe, maybe you have been trying all your life to be good enough to earn your way into heaven. And maybe you look at the Bible, and maybe with a cursory reading, you say, look, how look, Abram, that's the way Abram got there. Well, that must be the way I need to get there. No, my friend, that's not the way Abram got there. And that's not the way you're going to get there either. For you see, we've been saved by grace through faith. Paul tells us that it's a gift of God. It's not a matter of works. Did you hear that? It's not a matter of works, lest any man should boast. And you know what? That's true for Abraham, and that's true for us as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him never perish, never perish, but have everlasting life. Did you catch that? Whosoever believeth in him. A long time ago, we're coming up on the 2,000-year anniversary of this before too long. But a long time ago, the Apostle Paul found himself in a little Greek town called Philippi. Philippi is a very important town to us now, and it was actually an important town to them back then because some real famous battle took place there. But Paul found himself in that town, and he, he came and he gave the gospel, he gave the good news to those people. And one day, one day he came across a Philippian jailer who had actually mistreated Paul fairly, fairly, fairly badly. And Paul was in prison with his friend Silas. They were in chains great earthquake happens, the, the prison doors open, the chains fall off. And, you know, that could have been a position of extreme danger for that jailer because had the prisoners escaped, had Paul left, had he simply left, that, that jailer would have been executed by his Roman, the Roman bosses. But they didn't leave. As he was about to draw the sword and commit suicide, Paul said, don't do that, we're still here. Everyone is still here. You notice everyone, even the non-Christians, were still there. The Holy Spirit was doing a great work. Everyone was still there. So the guy has a conversation with Paul afterwards, and I'm sure that the conversation was much more extensive than what we have in Acts chapter 16. It probably went like, why in the world didn't you leave? And if I was to fill in the blanks, which is a very dangerous thing, I don't, I, I, I don't, take, don't write this down, but, but maybe Paul says, because I loved you. I'm not going to leave. I have something more important to tell you than me leaving. And the man said, what do I need to do to be saved? Now, he's not talking about a physical deliverance there. The physical danger is already over. The prisoners were still there. But he said, what do I need to do, me personally? Maybe you've asked yourself that as well. Here's the answer. I'll give you the same answer that Paul gave that Philippian jailer. We don't know his name. But he said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Salvation is by grace through faith. By grace means we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. Abram didn't deserve it. Now, the reason I'm telling you all this ahead of time is because we get to, when, by the time we get to the end of this chapter in just a little while, you're going to be amen in that. Abram certainly didn't deserve it. <laughs> but he was a great man of faith. But I, I want to tell you now, no he, no, he didn't. You know that, and I know that. He's flawed, we're flawed. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. Now, Jesus himself said that, that there's only one way to get there, only one way, and that's through him. It's open to everybody, but there's only one way, and that's by grace through faith. 
Now, if, now, if you haven't ever been here before, maybe you're thinking, well, he's fixing to give an invitation for you to come down. Now, I'm not, so just relax. Nobody's going to raise their hand. Nobody's going to come down front. This is a private matter between you and your Creator. And your Creator knows whether or not you've ever just told Him in your own thoughts, Father, I need a Savior. I know I do. I know I haven't been perfect. And I know I can't save myself. But I know Jesus Christ loved me and He died for me. And I'm trusting Him right now to provide my salvation. So if you've come in this morning and you're in that situation, I would invite you to do that. Just in, in the privacy of your own thoughts. And you can do it. God reads your thoughts. You don't even have to speak the words out loud. God reads your thoughts. And you can tell God the Father, Father, I am trusting in your Son, Jesus Christ, to save me right now. And you know what? I don't know what your physical birthday is, but your spiritual birthday will be May 2nd, 2010. And I trust that will be the, the case for you. That's what Abram did. We studied that in chapter 15. Abram believed in the Lord, and it was credited to him for righteousness, not because of his good works. Oh, far from it. So, having spoken of Abram's greatness, his, the fact that he was flawed and needs a Savior, uh, we move on to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16 is not... Unfortunately, it's not a chapter that reveals a man of faith. Genesis 16 is a chapter that reveals a man of failure. Isn't it interesting how a man who's respected by people who are Islamic, people who are Jewish, and people who are Christian as being a man of faith has a, was also a man of great failure? But he was. And we see in verses 1 through 3... They read this way. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne no children, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I may obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. In these verses, we are presented first with a problem, and then with a seriously misguided attempt at a solution to this problem. Now, the problem we've been introduced to all the way back in Genesis chapter 11 the problem is that Sarai, or Sarah, as should be known later, Sarah, was barren. We, we learned that all the way back in chapter 11, verse 30. It was presented as a problem then, and it is presented as a problem in the present text. Nothing has changed. But there is something different that is hinted at here in chapter 16 that we didn't find back in chapter 11. In chapter 11, we just simply had a statement of the situation. Now, Sarai was barren. Here it is slightly different. The way that Sarai, or Sarai presents herself, she is placing, at least she's giving a hint, of placing the responsibility for her not being able to have children squarely on the shoulders of the Lord. You see that now? Behold, the Lord has prevented me. Now, her words are true in a sense, to be sure. But there's still the sound of frustration in her words. And in a way, let's stop, in a way, I can't blame her. 
I understand why she would start to be a little frustrated. This problem has been around a long time. Sarai is, 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 is reaching at least older middle age by now. <laughs> was that tactful? I think it was. Okay. Thank you very much. She's getting on down life's road, as my friend Charles Pyle used to say. And she, she has no children, and that's a problem in that culture. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But it's been at least ten years since Abram received the promise that through him would come this great, incredible nation, and she's still barren. Sometimes waiting for God to come through can be a problem for us. And sometimes we get impatient. And Sarai was impatient. And I dare say her husband is going is to demonstrate that he was a bit impatient as well. But, but this is a problem. This is not a good thing. Her, her words are true in the sense that Eve's words were true. That Adam's words were true. Almost Remember back in Genesis chapter 3 when God confronts them with their sin? You know the first thing they said? Well, this woman that you gave me. It's your fault, Lord. You gave it to me. Then the woman couldn't help her. said, well, the, the serpent, which was the, which the implication that you created and put here, he deceived me. So there, there's a hint in Genesis chapter 16, there, are, there is an illusion in 16 that should draw our attention back to chapter 3. And this is not the only one. But this begins to tell us, at least it begins to give us a hint that something bad is happening here. Already, before we even get to what her solution is. But there's a second, perhaps even more subtle problem. And this is where we observe a parallel between Adam and Abram. Between Adam and Abram. At crucial moments, both of them listen to the voice of their wife. Yeah. Now, current political correctness aside, in the patriarchal narratives, listening to the voice of one's wife is cast in a negative light. And there's something that's unpleasant that's about to follow. Now listen, I understand the whole thing about if mama's not happy, not anybody's happy. I, I, I realize that. So I know right now mama's not happy, but this is, this is a biblical text we're going over right here. I have my friend Rod Schlechty. I don't know if he's here today or not, but he, he has, has a great saying. He said, listen, you can either be right or you can be happy, but you can't be both. You just pick your, pick your choice. Take your choice. So I know all that. But now back to the text. The problem with both Adam and with Abram was that they listened to the voice of their wife. Now you're going to see the problem that Abram is going to have by listening to Sarai's suggestion. And I, hey, listen, I know and you know that it's difficult if your wife makes a suggestion to say, hey, are you out of your mind? We can't do that. Try that today, most of you married folks, and I probably won't see you at the service tonight. <laughs> You'll be in an emergency room somewhere. But back to our text. You know, it is a serious problem. It was a serious problem for a man in the ancient world, particularly a man of means in the ancient world, to be childless, because that meant that that person had no heir. We've already seen from the previous chapter that Abram came up with his wild solution to this problem, and he wanted to make Eliezer of Damascus his heir. God says, no, I'm not going to do that. Then he takes him out and shows him all the stars. Abram, that's the place where we learn of, uh, of Abram's justification. And he reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant to him. But it's a problem for Abram to not have an heir, but it's every bit as much a problem for his wife. In our culture, things are a bit different. At least I hope they're different. They ought to be different. 
But in the ancient culture of the Near East, to be barren or not have children was a source of great embarrassment and shame for a woman. Again, it's not so much that way in our culture today, but it certainly was then. Now, here's what I want you to understand that's that's critical for appreciation of this chapter. What Sarai suggests, and you, you, you caught what she suggested. Since I can't have a baby, I want you to go in with my maidservant, and I want you to have a baby with her. What Sarai is suggesting was perfectly acceptable under the norms and standards of the culture in which she lived. Did you know that? Perfectly acceptable in the time in which she lived for that to be done. It was the legal custom of that day that a woman without child or a woman that could not have children could give her husband to someone else, particularly someone else that was in her charge, like a maid or a slave. And then the child that would be born from that union, from that union of intimacy, would be then adopted by the man as his legitimate heir, and then be considered the legitimate child of the woman who gave the husband into this situation in the first place. So what Sarai has in mind is that Abram is going to have a child through Hagar, and then Abram is going to adopt that child as his very own, and then the culture considers that child to be hers, and then guess where Hagar's left? Out in the cold, or we're going to find her, out in the desert. It wasn't a very kind system on the person who was the slave or the servant, but that's the way they did it in those days. Now, a few Old Testament commentators, like Klaus Westermann of the previous generation, for example, suggest that because Sarai's solution was culturally acceptable at the time that she made it, and it was the cultural norm at the time that she made it, that the action that was going to be taken is not sinful. While I appreciate Vesterman, anybody that's done Old Testament studies does. All of us have been influenced by him. I appreciate him, and I appreciate others who suggest this as well. But I couldn't disagree more forcefully than that. Listen to me so carefully, please. Social custom does not determine whether something is a sin. Social custom does not determine whether something is a sin. Moral relativity is not a biblical concept. Certainly, there are social customs that have no moral component. You know the thing about when you're in Rome, do as the Romans? There there are certain social customs that have no moral component at all. I go and I minister in, in certain cultures, and it's the custom in that culture for women to have their head covered particularly in the Islamic cultures that I minister in. You know what? Everybody on our ministry team, uh, every female on our ministry team, when we go into these places to minister, covers their head, even though they're in a Christian environment, because that's their cultural norm. And there's no moral component to that at all. When I preach in Africa, I preach, even if it's 105 degrees and as humid as it could possibly be, I preach in a suit, because that's their cultural norm. When I preach in India, they ask me to take my tie off but leave my coat on. That's their cultural norm. So, you see, I I go by what the cultural norm is because there's no moral component there. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a cultural norm that does have a moral component, and I hope that you can see what it is. is. There's a serious flaw with what Sarai is suggesting. So there is an, an ethical component to this suggestion. And just because Sarai says it's okay, 
And because the culture says it's okay, doesn't make it okay. Not in our day, not in Abraham's day, not ever. The culture doesn't get to determine what is and what is not sin. The holiness of God determines what is and what is not sin. I, I, couldn't, I, would, I would be nervous to think of what the, the, the standard would be of behavior today if we took the cultural norms. For goodness sakes, and cultural norms change all the time. Most of us have lived long enough to see cultural norms change in our own day. And if you haven't, just uh, if you've got cable, watch this, this classic movie station. And you'll see a lot of cultural norms that have changed just with regard to cinema. The way Moses frames this whole discussion indicates that what has been suggested is a problem. And again, we can't help but see the parallel. Adam fell into a big bunch of trouble because he, I'm sorry, listened to the voice of his wife. And that's the same words that the same human author, Moses, and the same divine author is using here. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram. And again, we have an, a reference, an allusion back to Genesis chapter 3. You'll remember this verse. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she, watch, took from its fruit and ate, and also gave to her husband, and he ate. Moses is, is drawing our attention back to this terrible moment in Genesis chapter 3, and he's saying, what happened then in terms of its terribleness is about to happen now. And you know why it's happening? In my view, it's happening, and I think in the view that the best understanding of this text, it's happening because they became impatient. And they had a problem that was a real problem. And they didn't see God working as fast as they wanted to see God working to solve that problem. So they came up with their own, their own solution to that problem. And if Abram, this great man of faith, had a fatal flaw, that seemed to be it. He always wanted to help God along. We've already seen that before. He went, remember he went down to Egypt, wanted to help God along in protecting him, so he calls Sarai his, his uh, sister instead of his wife. And now he's going to help God along, and, and I don't know... <laughs> Exactly how much hesitation there was on Abram's part, but there wasn't enough. You know, here, here, just go in with my maid servant. Have a child with her. Well, he was all for helping God right along with that. And, and I don't think it's very difficult to see that what he's doing is wrong. Listen, this is one of my primary points that I want you to take home today. God is not a respecter of cultural norms. He is not a respecter of cultural norms, or, or a respecter of political correctness, for that matter. Sin is anything that violates God's holy standard. Sin is not necessarily anything that violates the cultural norms. Now, sometimes the cultural norms meet up with God's holy standard, and so they can be one and the same. But sin is defined in its most basic sense as anything that violates God's holy standard. And this violates... God's holy standard. Now the narrative, as they say, goes downhill from here. Look at verses 4 through 6. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. Yeah, let that sink in. May the wrong, be, the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. 
I told you it goes downhill, not just on Sarai's part, but on Abram's part too. Because look at what Abram, this great man of faith, and he is. But anybody that thinks that Abram was a sinless man hadn't read chapter 16. Really? Look what he does to Hagar. Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. And so Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now, that's not good. I respect Vesterman and, and others, a few others that hold that view, but that Abram did nothing wrong here. But the text doesn't bear that out. It just simply doesn't. The word translated despised here in verse 4, when it says Hagar despised Sarai. It's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, as part of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember the part of the covenant, the one who curses you, I'll curse? That's the same word here. The Hebrew term is kalal, which means really to take lightly or to treat lightly. Maybe even it could be understood as to treat with a lack of respect. So it's probably going too far to say that after Hagar conceives, that she curses Sarai. That just would not have been done in the ancient world. Not by a slave to a master. Uh, it doesn't even mean that she treated her with outright contempt. But more likely it means that Hagar didn't show Sarai the same respect after this incident that she had shown her before. And that I could believe. And you probably could too. We might say, in the more modern terms, she developed an attitude. She had a tude after she got pregnant. And Sarai didn't appreciate that attitude, not one single bit. So she turns her anger with Hagar on the most logical source of the problem. That's Abram. Makes sense, doesn't it? And then her husband exercises a total lack of spiritual courage and agrees to the harsh treatment of Hagar. Don't tell me that nothing wrong is happening in this passage. This is a terrible chapter. At least, it's terrible with, with what is revealed here. We learn much from it. I hope we can learn a lot from it. And again, I understand about the whole domestic tranquility thing, but it would have been a nice time for Abram to speak up right here. It would have been a good time for him to say, you know what, sweetheart, sweet pea, honey bun. We got ourselves a little bit of a mess here. Uh, but you know what? It's not Hagar's fault. This mess is not her fault. This mess is my fault for agreeing to this. This mess is your fault for suggesting it. This is mess is both of our faults for not having enough faith to realize that God's going to do what he's going to do without us getting out of the plane and pushing. So why are we treating her harshly? Remind me of that again. No, she doesn't deserve this. If anybody deserves to be treated harshly, it's you and me, not her. That's what we would have expected this great man of faith to say. But I told you, chapter 16 is not one of those chapters that reveals this great man of faith. The rest of the patriarchal narratives do, but not here. <coughs> we see one of his flaws. In this narrative, Sarai is dead wrong in what she suggested. But so is her husband. And if anybody is even more dead wrong, it's Abram. Because he should have stopped it. He should have said, no, I'm not going in. And then even after he went in, he should have said, no, we're not going to treat this lady harshly. She's done nothing really to deserve this treatment. In spite of the fact that she got a little tood 
about it, little attitude. Well, you would expect she's pregnant and, and she was forced into this. Neither Abram nor Sarai had a moral leg to stand on. And that's the real problem here. The point of these verses and the point of this chapter and really the point of this message is that we cannot do things our way as opposed to God's way and then expect God to bless it. We can't just choose to, to, to observe a problem and then to help God along in solving that problem with our way that's opposed to his way. Now, now if it's his way, that's another thing. But if something's opposed to his way, we can't just get out of the plane and push and then expect God to make sure everything turns out fine. It doesn't work that way. God will take care of it. You know, God knows you need to make that car payment. He knows it. He knows you're behind on your house payment. He's fully aware, and he knows how hard you're working. But you don't need to start cheating on your time card to get the money. You don't need to file a false tax return. He knows it, and he's promised to take care of you. I, I'm very appreciative that the Holy Spirit wrote chapter 16 for us. Because otherwise we might get this idea that there are some people that have such great faith that they hardly ever fail, and when they do, it's just a mistake. No, this is a sin. This is a man of great faith that had a sin. And listen, you've had them, and I've had them. We all have. We're all here by the grace of God. And that's why I say to you, if you've never, if you've never received that grace, if you've never personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, today's the day to do it. None of us can be good enough to earn our salvation, even Abram. Now, in verses 7 through 12, the angel of the Lord found her. This is Hagar. Remember, she has fled. She's out in the desert. The angel of the Lord has found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar's, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? That reminds us also, doesn't it, back at chapter 3 of Genesis, God comes out and says, hey, where are you guys? What's going on? Something wrong here? Now, God knows all about what's going on. You know what he's doing? He's giving her an opportunity to dialogue with him, and that's God in his grace. And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they shall be too many to count. Let me, inter let me interject here real quickly. The Lord is not committing the sin of Abram. Of course not. You see, he's telling her, you go back, I'm going to bless you. See, he's adding blessing to this negative situation. So it's not a parallel. The angel of the Lord, in verse 11, said to her further, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. And you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. And he will be a wild donkey of a man. That's uh, the kindest translation that the Bible gives us. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. God, while refusing to honor the schemes of Sarai and Abram, does protect the innocent. And in this text, Hagar is presented largely, not as sinless, I hope you've gotten that by now, but as innocent, relatively speaking. God did not ordain the mistreatment of Hagar, and he stepped in when Abram wouldn't. 
know, there are a lot of things that have been done in the name of God, in the name of Christianity, over the course of the last 2,000 years, of which God doesn't approve. And sometimes today, skeptics like to, to say, I'm not going to be a Christian because of you fill in the blank. And, and I've always appreciated the words of St. Augustine, spoken about, oh, about 400 years after Christ was born. He said, you never judge a faith by its abuses. And this is, this is not the faith of Yahweh that, that Sarai and Abraham are engaged in here. This is an abuse. And God steps in and says, no, this, you're the man of promise, Abram, but this is not the way you're going to treat this lady. She doesn't deserve that. Again, she's not sinless, but she is innocent as this narrative is portraying her. And so God is not going to ordain this kind of mistreatment. No, God didn't ordain the Spanish Inquisition. That didn't, have God, that didn't have God anywhere near it. And there are certain things that were done in the crusade, yes, that were wrong. And God didn't ordain that either. You know, in a large way, that was people trying to earn their way to heaven. I mean, read it and you'll see. These are people that were told by the Pope, you go down and kill a whole bunch of Muslims and you're going to heaven. That's not Christianity. Never has been, never will be. That's an abuse, and you never judge a faith by its abuses. So God's not going to honor this abuse. Now, the angel of the Lord, we do need to mention that here briefly. The angel of the Lord is understood by most theologians, most Old Testament scholars, to be here a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. It means this is the second person of the Holy Trinity that is, that is manifesting himself before the virgin birth that will occur actually some 2,000 years after this event. Hagar was to return to Sarai and Abram and to submit herself to Sarai's authority. She would be blessed, though. She'd be blessed with a son whose name was Ishmael. Now, Ishmael means God hears or perhaps may God hear. And that's an important part of this narrative in, in verse 11. Because the Lord has given heed to your Affliction. When the Lord hears, it means he's acted upon something. You know, I may say, listen, I hear you. You know, it may just be an expression for us. But when God says, listen, I hear you, he's, it means he's acting upon that in a, in a positive way. At least that's the way that it is most of the time in the Old Testament. And then the third thing that we see from these verses is that the descendants of Ishmael will be too many to count. Now, where have you heard that before? You've heard that with Abram through the proper channels. So God is going to bless this one. Now, this doesn't mean that the Abrahamic covenant has shifted over to Ishmael. Not at all. We see that in the further narratives, that there will be another child born, Isaac. And by the way, that's something that people have argued about for a long time now. But no, Ishmael is not the child of the promise. The child of the promise is Isaac. But there will be many, many descendants, and that is a blessing. So Ishmael is not promised the same blessing that Abram has been promised, in fact, the text tells us that he'll be a wild donkey of a man, which is a figure that's used in the Old Testament of an individual, or an individualistic, rather, lifestyle that's unfettered by social convention. An individualistic lifestyle that's unfettered by social convention. Now, some, if we were to put this in the most positive possible light, we'd say this is just a fellow that marches to the beat of his own drummer. But that would probably be way too positive of a light to put it in. This is a man that's not going to get along with anybody. This, this is a man that has no so, social customs, no norms, no social graces whatsoever are going to be found in Ishmael. 
And in fact, we're going to see that everyone that everyone that he comes in contact with is going to be in conflict with him, and he's going to be in conflict with everyone he comes in contact with. You know people like that sometimes? They just don't seem to get along with anybody? That everybody's always after them? That, that everybody's always ugly and mean? Now, I quit believing that when the word everybody gets used. Because not everybody hates you. And if you find yourself in conflict with everybody, then maybe you need to look in the picture at somebody, and that's somebody being you. Maybe there's something you're doing that causes this. And certainly we see from this wild donkey of a man, Ishmael, that this is going to be his fault, not so much the fault of the people that were around him. He'll be in constant conflict. Constant conflict. Now, you're aware that Muhammad was a descendant of Ishmael, and the promise of constant conflict has been a reality, has it not? And I think both sides of the aisle would agree with this. Whether you're on the Christian side or the Christian, the Judeo-Christian side or on the Islamic side, there has been constant conflict. So that has certainly become a reality. And now finally, as the passage closes, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Thou art a God who sees, for she said, I have, have I even remained alive here after seeing him. She knew enough about the theology of the Old Testament to know I've just seen God, and I'm still alive, and I'm blessed. Do you see why she wouldn't be so uncomfortable taking God's revelation and going back and serving Sarai? Now think, think about it for a minute. Abram had revelation. Sarai had revelation. Hagar had revelation. Who's acting most consistently with the revelation received, at least in chapter 16. Well, you can be sure it's not doors number one and two. It's Hagar. If I was Hagar, if I wasn't convinced that this was the Lord speaking to me, I'd be a little nervous about going back to Sarai. I think she's going to kill me. If this is just any messenger, but she recognizes who it is that's speaking to her. And what the Lord spoke to her was more significant in her mind than the danger that she faced in going back. Hagar was, in this sense, at least in this chapter, in this sense, she was behaving in a proper way. Verse 14, Therefore the well was called Be'er Laha Roy. Behold, it is between Kanesh and Bered. Then in verse 15, we have a summary. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom he bore, Ishmael. So apparently... Hagar has passed on the information to Abram what happened out there in the desert. Now, the text never records for us what Abram's response is, nor does it record really what Sarai's response is to, to, that, uh, to that revelation. But I just, I just bet, because now for a bit of time we're going to see the, more the, the positive Abram come back, at least the bulk of the time. I suspect Abram thought, oh my... It looks like I might have done a really bad thing here. Because the Lord looks like he's intervened. The Lord has cast judgment on this. And this is not like Judge Judy on nighttime TV, banging the gavel down and saying, no, you've got to pay the $400. Because <laughs> you, slept, you slept in the back seat of that car there and didn't pay that, that lady any rent for that. You know, something, some of those silly things. This is God bringing the gavel down. So you did the wrong thing, Abram. You don't mistreat my people. And you don't try to get out and push the plane. 
Abram was the recipient of the covenant, but God cared about Hagar. Sometimes we get the idea because the narrative in Genesis from chapter 12 all the way to the end is essentially about the offspring of Abram, Abram's life and his offspring. Sometimes we get the idea that that may be the only person God really cared about. That's not true. Abram was certainly a, a great man of faith, and he's respected. He's, he's, for the most part, other than our chapter today, and if, if you're visiting us from out of town, I hope you'll read the rest of the Genesis narrative, Genesis narrative so you don't get the wrong idea about this great man. But Abram was a great man. There are great people that are outlined in the Scriptures. I've got my list of who I think was the greatest, and you might have yours too. Our list don't really matter. God's list matters. But there is such a thing as spiritual greatness. But I've got to tell you, you don't have to be an Abram or a Moses or an Esther or a Ruth or a Paul or a Peter or a John to be cared for by your Creator. You see, because God loves the Hagars of this world as well. God loves the mistreated as well. And he's not going to allow even his man of the promise to mistreat one of his creation. God values all of his creation. That's why we can say with confidence, as it says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, and that includes you, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, and that includes you, believeth in him shall never perish but have everlasting life. God loved Abram. He loved Sarai. He also loved Hagar. So in chapter 16, we've learned that social custom is not synonymous with the standard of God. We learn that Abram and Sarai made a difficult situation worse by not faithfully waiting, waiting for God, and then striking out on their own to find a solution as to how to have this heir. And finally, by way of personal application, you know, we too can mess things up in a big way when we choose to do things our way or perhaps the way of the culture to accomplish what we think God's will is for our lives. No. We need to wait. For they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. For they that wait upon the Lord. Don't try to do it your way. If I try to do it my way, it's going to be a total disaster. Do it God's way. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that the Bible presents us an honest and balanced view of our heroes, biblically. We recognize that the hero with a capital H of the Bible is our Lord Jesus Christ, and he's the only one that's ever lived a sinless life. But we do appreciate the stories of great men and women of the Bible. And Father, I appreciate that that you've also exposed some of their weaknesses for us so that we might forever keep in front of our minds the fact that they weren't saved because they were perfect. They were saved because of your grace. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that has never personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life, I I do pray that the Holy Spirit would would convict them in their own minds of their need for a Savior and, and, and let them know just how much you love them, how much you want to, to have them spend eternity with you, and so that this might be the day of their salvation. Now, Father, as we go from this place, I pray that you would dismiss us with the riches of thy grace and peace and mercy upon us. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.